This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Seated. All right. If you would, go ahead and throw up on the screen the visual that we've been using uh, throughout this series in the Psalter. If you're visiting with us, we have uh, been using a, a visual um, for the Psalter. The Psalter is the 150 Psalms in the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and the Psalter's main uh, metaphor for understanding life is the same as the rest of the Bible. And that is that life is a path. Uh, that life is a path, and on that path you'll have some level places, some low places, and some high places. And, and the way we're thinking about the Psalter is we're understanding um, that various psalms are sometimes more helpful at various places in the path. Or another way to say that is that while not all the psalms can be plugged into a genre or a category, a lot of the psalms are very similar. And so the various genres in the Psalter uh, can be applied to particularly well to various places on the path. So for example, uh, Psalms of Thanksgiving are best when either coming out of a low place or being taken by God to a high place. Uh, Psalms of repentance are best when prayed in a low place because of your sin. Uh, Psalms of lament or deliverance are best prayed and enjoyed and learned from when in the valley due to other people's sin against you or the fact that you just live uh, in a broken uh, world. And so our, our current uh, psalm for this morning is Psalm 131, and it's a psalm of confidence, as you can see on the screen behind me. I only listed three of the nine uh, so-called psalms of confidence. And the psalms of confidence are particularly helpful. Uh, they're particularly insightful. They are particularly life-giving when there's a lot of fog in front of you. When you could go down or you could go up, you're not really sure what's going to happen next. And so when there's uncertainty and confusion in life, the Psalms of confidence are great to run to. I'm going to need you now to begin to apply this sermon to yourself uh, because I can't do it throughout. But it would be good for you if you would just pick a place of uncertainty and a place of confusion in your life where you can't see that far in front of you. It could be the question of, will that institution, that school, or that business accept me? It could be the question of, will she break up with me? It could be the question of, will the test results uh, find a malignant tumor or a benign tumor? You see, there are these times in life where God doesn't let us see that far ahead of us or as far as we'd want to see. And the Psalms of Confidence are our opportunity to go to God's Word and to steady ourselves in who God is, not our circumstances. So that no matter what happens next, we can be alive and joyful and hopeful. Uh, there's another time where a psalm of confidence is particularly helpful, and it's what I kind of want to focus on this morning, and that's when we're experiencing a low, and we're wondering how God's promises can ever be true. In this instance, I would have you visualize yourself in the low on life's path and looking at the question mark at the climactic point uh, of the image there on the far right. 
You see, when we go through lows in life, it's really hard to believe all of God's promises about the future. And again, the Psalms of confidence are our opportunity to steady ourselves in the character and the promises of God. Maybe as you think through this sermon all the way through, you have a question, uh, not necessarily a question like this, but maybe there's something like this going on uh, in your life. Maybe you didn't get into the school or the institution you had hoped to get into. Maybe she did break up with you. Maybe your children have gone off the deep end. Maybe the tumor was malignant and your best friend has now died. Maybe your marriage has come to an end through betrayal. You see, Psalms of Confidence are all about placing your trust in God. If you look at verse 3 of your text, it tells you, Oh Israel, that's us now. Place your hope in God from this time on and forevermore. Put your trust in God, not your circumstances. Put your trust in God's goodness and his grace and his power and his promises and not in your current experiences. And so Psalm 131 is the psalm we have for today and it's a psalm uh, where David is expressing his trust in God and he's calling us to the same. But what's so interesting about this psalm is that David is acknowledging that that this hasn't always been the case. If you look down at the passage, you can actually see in these short three verses that David explains a progression in his life or he assumes a progression and a growth in his life. You can see this because in verse two, he says, but... I have calmed and quieted my soul. He's telling us that prior to being humble, he was proud, verse one. That prior to being respectful, he was presumptuous, verse one. Prior to being calm, he was agitated, verse two. Prior to being quieted, he was clamoring, verse two. Prior to being like a weaned child, listen to this. He was a terrible two, grasping and clutching and demanding that he get what's, gets what he want, wants when he wants it. This, this metaphor, normally the Psalms of Confidence have metaphors in them about God, your rock, your shield, your help. This Psalm of Confidence is so unique because it has a metaphor for, for David himself. It assumes something about God. It implies something about God, but it's primarily about David. In this time, across the three main cultures of 1000 BC, we know that children were usually weaned at age three or four. And the mom would tend to know that it's time to wean the child when the child was overpowering her and getting what it wants when it wants it. And so in the original audience's mind, prior to becoming a weaned child in this difficult circumstance or a weaned child in this confusing circumstance, David was a terrible two, getting what he wanted when he wanted it. And that's the picture that David wants in our minds. That it's not simple and easy to get to this place of trust and hope. But that across time, he had gotten to this place. And so what I want to do in these three verses is I want to show you four clues that I see that show me the four steps that David took in getting to a more calm, more quieted, more hopeful, more trustful, you might say more weaned place. All right, four steps, and we're gonna look at them in turn. Step one, step one, remember. Remember that there's a God and you're not him. Remember that there's a God and you're not him. How does the psalm start? Oh Lord, oh Jehovah, 
This direct address to God. He continues, my heart is not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. A lifted up heart in the Bible is a description of pride. It's to have an elevated view of yourself. To have lifted up eyes in the Bible is a description of presumption. Uh, Pride is when you think too high of yourself. Presumption is when you enter into and look into things that are none of your business. He says, oh Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not presumptuous. And by starting this way at the very beginning, he is telling us that he has learned there is a God and he's not me. I'm not him. And so the first step becoming like a weaned child is to remember, remember, to continually member and put the pieces back together. There's a powerful Lord and I'm not him. I'm the humble servant. There's a brilliant creator and I'm not him. I'm the dignified creature. There's a good shepherd, Psalm 23, and I'm not him. I'm the less than brilliant, but really loved and cared for sheep. There's a loving dad and I'm not him. I'm the beloved child. One commentator said it this way. The difference between God and us is that God never sees himself as us. The difference between God and us is that God never sees himself as us. And the first and fundamental sin of the Bible is to see yourself as God. Think Adam and Eve. The first and fundamental sin of the Bible is to want to control everything, is to want to understand everything, is to want to bless and give permission to everything, is to want God himself to give us an an executive summary about the future so that we can modify it, approve it, and bless it. It's the first and fundamental sin of humanity. And so when going through very confusing times, not sure what's going to come next, anxious and fearful, when going through really painful times and feeling maybe anger or numbness, the first step to this calm and quiet place on the lap of God, the, the first step to living through that chaos like a weaned child is to remember my favorite uh, illustration and visual from seminary. I've shared this with you before. Uh, I'll share it with you again today. I will share it with you again probably in a year. One of my favorite professors used to frequently put up on the whiteboard this very simple illustration for all of life. He would draw a huge circle at the top of the board representing God. He would draw a very small circle at the bottom of the whiteboard representing humanity. He would draw a huge bold arrow from God to man and a very small faint arrow from man back to God. And he would always say, the point of the visual is this, that you're made in God's likeness. That's why it's two circles. But you're made for relationship with God. That's why there's a huge arrow in both in one direction and a small arrow in the other direction. But the main point of the entire illustration is you're not God. You're not the God circle. You have incredible dignity as an image bearer and as a child of this God, but you also have this profound limitation and humility because you're a creature and you're a servant. And so verse three calls us, look at it again. Hope in the Lord and not in yourself from this time forth and forevermore. Step one, there's a God We are not him. Step two, walk. And by the way, I would think of these four steps less like a journey and more like a dance. You'll keep doing these four steps over and over and over for the rest of your life. Step two, walk carefully to the edge of too great and too marvelous. Walk carefully. I know this is confusing. I hope to explain it. 
Walk carefully to the edge of too great and too marvelous. When we go through these seasons of uncertainty, when we go through these times of suffering, if we read this psalm too quickly, we might think that David is calling us to inactivity. We might think that David is saying, what I want in you is some stoic form of of detached lack of emotion. But that's not what David is calling for. There is a tiny word in verse one that if you miss it, it makes a huge difference in how you understand this psalm. Look at verse one. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. David does not say my eyes are not looking up at all, looking for more understanding and more insight. He says my eyes are not raised too high. If you keep going in verse one, the English word given as occupy is actually the Hebrew word for walking but it's a very intense form of the verb. And so that's why none of the translations simply give it as walk. They kind of add something to it like occupy. The best translation for that part of this verse is something like this. I don't walk with intense determination into things too great and too marvelous for me. If you grew up on the King James, you know that the King James version says, I don't exercise myself in things too marvelous for me. David, would, David is, is saying, I want you to lift up your eyes. I want you to seek more understanding. I want you to ask God for wisdom, James chapter one. But I want you to be careful to not be presumptuous and lift them up too high. And further, David is saying, I want you to walk carefully into the great and marvelous truths found in scripture and found in community. But then David is telling the Lord, he says, my soul is quiet and my soul is calm because my eyes are not too high and I'm not too demanding as I ask you about these great and marvelous things. David is saying, I'm getting to the edge of too great and too marvelous and I'm gonna stop right here for now. The wise person, when dealing with her confusion and her uncertainty and her pain, will seek instruction and guidance and understanding from the Father. But the wise person will also know that because there's a God and she's not him, she's going to get to the point where her comprehension capacity is maxed out. And her wisdom tells her, beyond this point is too great and too marvelous for you. But, but listen to what I just said the wise person also understands that if they could press into more, what they would find is great and marvelous, not small and disappointing. Biblical peace in dark, confusing, hard times is not this detached stoicism that I'm gonna stuff my emotions and not feel anything. Biblical peace is not this uh, Doris Day, quesera, sarah, whatever happens will be, will be. Biblical peace is to say, I know what will be. The, The Bible has told me what will be. But I begin to get into too marvelous and too great when I demand to be told how it will be and when it will be. I get into the land of too great and too marvelous when I demand how will that be and when will that be. So I want to get practical but not simple. So I want to give you a few examples. When we and the ones we love fight cancer and we're uncertain and we're anxious as to how it will all play out, When we or the one we love die from ALS or a heart attack or an auto accident and we're devastated and distraught. Maturity is not this. I don't feel anything. I stuff what I feel. 
Maturity is not this. It doesn't really matter how it plays out or how it played out. I'm just going to be happy. A careful walking is to read in the scriptures where God says that one day we will have resurrected and perfect bodies that can never hurt, never decay, never die, and never feel pain. Careful walking and appropriate looking, that is not too high, is to calm and quiet your soul in the truth that the Bible clearly gives us. Stubborn walking like a terrible two is to demand to know right now how this will happen and when this will happen. God's answer to Job is that's too great and that's too marvelous for you. Maybe in this life you'll understand more. Maybe in the new heavens and the new earth you'll understand more, but that answer is too great and too marvelous. Or when going through a trial, when going through suffering, when going through pain, some pain, let's say, not caused by your sin, but pain caused by the sins of others or pain caused because you live in a fallen world. The Bible says all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called by him according to his purposes. The Bible says that trials produce character and joy and endurance and maturity in time. To walk carefully and to seek appropriately is to feed on these promises. To walk carefully and seek appropriately is to look back on your life and say, every trial I've struggled through, every one, God has in fact used that trial to refine me and purify me and grow me and draw from me a love for him that I did not have before. To walk carefully and to seek appropriately is to live in the community and to hear the stories of others. Listen to others as they bear witness to you as to the ways in which God has used their pain, transformed their descent, how he has redeemed their suffering and made them steadfast and joyful and full of character and hope because of trials. James says, count it, consider it, reckon it all joy when you go through trials. To seek presumptuously and to walk intensely is to demand that the trial stops right now. Or to demand right now how God could ever turn this loss into something good. Because you see, step two uh, flows from step one in this dance. If we're God, nothing can be too great and too marvelous for us. But if there is a God and we're not him, wouldn't we expect and wouldn't we actually want there to be realities and truths that are too great and too marvelous for us? I know from my own suffering, I know from my own losses, I know from my own confusion that it's so tempting to shrink God down to, to a simple size and a size where everything he does is understandable by me. But then I begin to think about it and I think, no, I don't actually want that God. If I shrink God down to the size of my brain, I'm gonna inevitably shrink down his blessing and his healing and his mercy and his forgiveness. Jesus says that where we're going is beyond our wildest imaginations. And if I shrink God in this moment down into the size of my brain and say, explain it to me, he says, no, because I love you. I'm never gonna be held within your capacities because what I wanna give you is far more than you could, anything you could ever dream. Step one to a quiet soul in confusing and painful times is to remember that there's a God and we're not him. Step two is to walk carefully to the edge of two great, and too marvelous, and sit there. Step three is notice. Notice that your tantrum is only hurting you. 
Notice that your tantrum is only harming you. I don't want to speak trivially about our pain and our response to that pain, but I want us to see the magnitude of God and let his immensity make us and our response appear as small as it is. Remember what what David's saying in this Psalm of Confidence. In verse three, he's calling Israel to this posture of the soul that he is currently enjoying, this calm and quiet place. And the visual and the illustration and the metaphor that David uses for his soul is that of a satisfied child sitting peacefully upon uh, his mother's lap. But remember what we said at the beginning, David says, I have calmed and I have quieted my soul. That means in the past he wasn't calm and he wasn't quiet. He wasn't trusting and he wasn't hoping. And again, this is where I think the metaphor is so brilliant. David is calling the audience, he's calling into their mind's eye, that two or three-year-old in the mother's lap, fighting for the food, grasping for the breast, demanding what it wants, when it wants, even if it's not a good time for that. And it's hard, it's not hard to see in your mind's eye that two or three-year-old throwing a tantrum when, when he or she doesn't get what they want. It looks something like this. God, how could you possibly let this happen? How could I ever get to this age and not be married? God, how could I ever get to this age and be in a marriage that's not fulfilling? How could you ever let this happen? God, how can you possibly be good and all-powerful? How can you be good and all-powerful and this happen to my child? How dare you? God, you you fix this financial situation right now. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't care. I I don't care how you do it. I, I don't care if it's some miracle beyond my comprehension. Fix it and fix it now. That's the spiritual Terrible two temper tantrum of a 50-year-old. Now, God, you're on notice. You're on probation. If you don't shape up, I'm running away. How many four-year-olds promise to run away? Step three is for us to notice that our tantrum is only harming us. There's this unexpected turn in verse two, and it really confused me all week, and then finally yesterday, the, the penny dropped for me. There's this unexpected turn in verse two that tells me that the tantrum of my soul is only harming me and it's only causing me anxiety and it's not harming God and it's not causing him anxiety. Verse one, I'm at a humble and respectful place. Look at verse two. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Okay, like a weaned child with its mother. There's the metaphor. Now I want you to close your eyes. Trust me and close your eyes, or at least if you can't trust me that much, don't look at the text. He gives the metaphor and then he applies the metaphor. And I want you to think of what you would expect at the end of this line. Like a weaned child with its mother, there's the metaphor. Like a weaned child is my soul upon, upon who? Who would you expect David to say? Like a weaned child is upon you. Oh Lord. But look, what does David say? Obviously, God is in the metaphor of the mother. And when David doesn't say, like a weaned child with you, but he says, like a weaned child is my soul upon, literally upon me, David, David is saying, now that I sat down at this place of too great and too marvelous, I realized that my tantrum was only harming me. And now not only is my soul at peace with you, 
but my soul is at peace within me. On Thursday afternoon, around nap time for toddlers, which is a horrible, horrible time to fly, particularly when you're flying to Orlando and there's about 700 of them on every plane. I was, I was flying from Memphis to Orlando and I was sitting in my seat and I could hear the screaming getting closer and closer and closer. And finally the dad got to the bottom of the jet bridge and he turned the corner and on one shoulder is one bag and on another shoulder is another bag. And in his arms is this good sized three or four year old toddler throwing a massive tantrum. Now think, he was confused He was uncertain. He did not understand how this experience was going to ever be good for him. He was screaming and flailing and he was going berserk. And all the way down the aisle, I could hear the kid's head slamming against seat after seat after seat. Nobody wanting to turn around because we felt so sorry for that dad. Let me ask you a question. Who was not in control? The kid. Who was beyond their comprehension capacities? The kid. Who was the only one being harmed by the tantrum? Who was losing their voice? Who was taking himself to the point of physical exhaustion? Who was bruising his head as it slammed against seat after seat after seat? The kid. And you think, how dare you trivialize my life in this way? I don't trivialize your life. I just say God's that big. That Jesus himself says, look to little toddlers if you want to understand faith. How much more so with God? I got to tell you, if you actually come to grips with this as I have, it actually helps you to not throw the temper tantrum because the temper tantrum is not doing what you had hoped it would do. Is God fretting in heaven? Oh my, they're demanding to know what's going to happen and they're saying they won't follow us if we don't tell them. Oh my, they're demanding to know right now how this works out for the good or they say they won't worship us this Sunday. Oh my, they've hired a lawyer. And the father turns to Jesus, do we still have Matlock on retainer? Like a weaned child is my soul, not only upon its mother, that is God, but also like a weaned child is my soul upon me. Step four. If you're offended by step three, listen to step four. Rest, rest in the Father's arms. About 30 minutes into my flight, I got up to go to the bathroom and the restroom in front of me was taken and the restroom behind me was my only option. So I walked towards the back of the plane and sure enough, resting in his Father's arms in a peaceful slumber is that same little boy. I didn't want to and I'm ashamed of myself that I didn't because I should have encouraged that dad. I should have told him how proud I was of him. When he walked down the aisle, he was the exact opposite of me. He was either tremendously filled with the Holy Ghost or smoking marijuana. (laughs) Had my flight originated in Colorado, I would have guessed marijuana. And as he walks down the aisle, his kid is flailing around. This dad was so peaceful, so understanding, not embarrassed, not ashamed. He was just there doing whatever he had to do to keep that kid in his arms. And then in time, maybe through concussion, the strong, unconditional love of that father triumphed. That little boy who lost track of who was in charge. That little boy who began to freak out when he couldn't comprehend how this would be good for him. That little boy who only harmed himself in his feeble attempts to get away. Eventually, because of the father's strong arms, 
he experienced rest in those very same arms. In in verse 1, David is talking about his relationship with the Lord. In verse 3, David refers to our relationship with the Lord. In verse 2, David uses this metaphor to help us understand that relationship. And Psalm 131, listen closely, is not a psalm requesting God to love us like a tender mother. Psalm 131 is telling us to hope in the God who has loved us, is loving us, and will love us like a tender mother. The psalm is not teaching that God is mother. Okay, in the same way that Jesus was not teaching he's a mother hen in the New Testament when he said, I'd like to pull you, Jerusalem, under my wings like a mother hen. It's not teaching that God is mother. It's teaching this, like a weaned child with its mother. We can be calm and quiet in the strong and tender and prevailing arms of our God. Do you remember the illustration that I often use to describe biblical faith? To talk about the fact that biblical faith involves your head and your heart. It involves understanding and it involves trust. It involves trust. Uh, we've said that faith is like a chair. You, you are wise if you first study a chair and think about the chair and become rationally convinced that the chair can hold you. That's wisdom to start in your head. But faith has to move into your will or it's not faith. At some point, you have to sit down in the chair. Until then, you'll exhaust yourself thinking about the rest and the support and the comfort that the chair could give. That's what's happening in this psalm. David is saying, no matter how confused or how hurt you are, you're in the Father's arms. Go ahead and rest. You're not in danger of him dropping you, but you won't have calm and quiet until you let your soul rest in his strength, in his promises, and in his love. And so maybe God is speaking to some of us in this sermon, and maybe we're realizing that we are being rebellious, that we are being disrespectful, that we are being untrusting while going through an uncertain or a painful time. And maybe we're realizing that there is enough truth in the scripture for me to chew on. There is enough proof in my own story that God can use this for good. There is enough stories in my, there are enough stories in my community to help me know that while I haven't gone through this, other people have gone through this, and they say God is good at the end of it. And maybe I'm realizing as I go through this time of confusion or this time of pain, maybe I'm realizing uh, that that God is in fact going to keep me in his arms. Or I hope that God keeps me in his arms. How can you know? Think about the call to worship from Isaiah 46. I'm not going to read it to you again. I want you to read it on your own. But don't miss the main point of the text. It's found in verse 4. That although Israel in that text is called idolatrous and rebellious and a group of transgressors, God says this in verse 4. Listen to this. The metaphor of a parent picking up and holding a child is huge in the Old Testament, and it's often of God and his people. Even to your old age, I am he, 50-year-old throwing that tantrum. And to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you. I will bear you. I will carry you. And I will save you. God's decision to carry us like toddlers has nothing to do with our performance. God's decision to carry us even to our gray hairs has nothing to do with our performance. It has everything to do with his promise and his love. It is not about him, or excuse me, it is about him. It is not about us. Let's say that you've gotten past that point and you believe God will never drop me. 
But let's say that you're a Christian and you're saying, I know that God is going to carry me, but I'm doubting very seriously whether or not God is enjoying it, whether or not God is delighting in it, whether or not God is smiling at me as he carries me. Maybe because of our own sin and brokenness and fallenness, maybe we see God carrying us the way we carry our children. Agitated, tense, regretful. I want to tell you a story. I want to make a very particular connection from this story to the sermon, and then I want us to be done. I read the story this week of Rachel Wolf and her dad, James. Sadly, James Wolf will most likely die of pancreatic cancer in the next few months. Julie, his daughter, was lamenting all the realities in her life that her dad will likely miss. As she was thinking this through, she was crushed by realizing that her dad will likely miss her wedding and that she will most likely miss out on having with him the father-daughter dance. And so Julie decided to do something about it. Without a groom, without a fiancé, And from what I can tell without a boyfriend, she invited her dad to her wedding. She asked him to dance and she taped the entire ordeal so she could have it later, telling him, I don't want to experience this apart from you. She used her her life savings and she bought a dress. She had her mom and her siblings dress their father in the hospital and bring him to a park in beautiful Southern California. And she pulled up in a limousine. And as her dad is standing there with others holding him up, she steps out of the car in this beautiful white dress. And her dad instinctively yelled, Hey, honey, you look gorgeous. If you go online, I'll begin to cry if I think about it. You can see pictures and videos of these two and their family dancing. And you can see the dad whispering sweet nothings into the ear of that child. And I want to ask you a question. What do you think he's saying? No agitation. No regretfulness. No tension. You're beautiful. I love you. You mean the world to me. I'm proud of you. You've given me a huge gift in the way you've lived your life. And here's the point. Whatever Jack Wolf was feeling for his daughter as he held her in his arms, that feeling is finite and minuscule compared to the love of God for you as he holds you in his arms. Not because you are thoughtful like Jack Wolf's daughter, but because Jesus was always thoughtful. Jesus was always obedient. Jesus was always perfect. Jesus was always giving to the Father a beautiful life. Jesus was always living his life, not for himself, but for the Father, even when it got really, really hard. And then Jesus goes to the cross to die for the anger and the agitation and the wrath we deserve. And he clothes us in his righteousness. He gives us his record. He causes the Father to look at us and to hold us as if we're him. We're going to take communion here in a second, and we're going to talk more particularly about this beautiful life of Jesus. But right now, I just want us to stop and sing because God will not let go of us because he let go of Jesus. And that further, God will adore you and love you and delight in you and enjoy you because he sees you like Jesus. Let's pray and then sing.
Father, we thank you for this incredible, incredible gift that you've given to us in Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that in your life, even in very difficult times, you never raised your eyes too high and you never walked uh, um, uh, too aggressively. Uh, You never walked incorrectly. You always submitted. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have died for our sin. We thank you, Jesus, that you have given us your life and your record. We thank you, Jesus, that the the relationship you'll have with the Father forever is the relationship you want us to have, and you've given it to us. We thank you, Jesus, that the spirit of sonship lives inside of us, reminding us that Abba, that the Father is our Abba. We pray that this freedom, that this joy, that this gift will transform us into more peaceful and calm and trusting men and women. Holy Spirit, would you please come and fill us and lead us into this life of being loved, this rigorously and this beautifully and this tenderly. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.